Hello. Is there any future for British children's TV programmes? Audiences are in free fall as children are glued to TikTok and YouTube. Does this matter? Can anything be done about it? I'm away on holiday this week, but before I left, I talked to the best possible person to tell me what is happening and whether there is any hope that our children and grandchildren will have the sort of rich viewing experience in the future which some of us had in the past. Greg Childs is the director of the Children's Media Foundation and editorial director of the Children's Media Conference. He also worked for over 25 years at the BBC on children's programmes. I was keen to discuss with him why children's television is in crisis and what, if anything, can be done about it. Greg Charles, welcome to the podcast. Can I say what an honour it is to talk to the former producer of Record Breakers, which I think you did, you did for 10 years and which I watched more than my children. It must have been great, great fun, wasn't it, doing that programme? It was fantastic fun, yes. Um, we we worked with, um, well, I worked with the, the delightful Roy Castle and Cheryl Baker and uh, and then then later Chris Akabusi and Ron Reagan Jr. as uh, our reporters and it, yeah, and the the people who were on it were you know a mixture of incredibly dedicated to use a <laughs> a term that royal was used but also completely crazy and uh, it made it tremendous fun do you ever look back at any of those or are you one of those people who say no that was the past there's no point oh no i love to look back i love to but i have very few of them because we made so many and it was such a sort of you know uh, inexorable sort of schedule yes uh, and we, you didn't keep stuff in those days you didn't take vhs's home that often and uh, turns out there's not very much of it on youtube i'm really quite surprised that more people haven't sort of captured bits and put them on youtube yeah, I haven't kept much of I was involved. Mind you, I depressed people with my programmes on her rather than uh, create <laughs> entertainment. But we used to do stupid things like cut, cut, cut uh, videotape and then reuse the, uh, either throw it away or reuse the videotape and wipe over things. And we had no sense that television ha- might have a... or television archive might have a life afterwards. Anyway, there we are. That's another matter. Now, now, of course, you're director of the Children's Media Foundation and editorial director of the Children's Media Conference. So can you just spell out what that involves? I mean, what is the Children's Media Foundation? Well, we're an advocacy body. Um, we, we're a group of mainly professionals or retired professionals from children's media industry in various guises, and um, almost all of us volunteers. And we, we basically lobby and campaign for the best possible programmes and the best possible services and the greatest choice for UK kids. And you also are, uh, run the children's or editorial director of the Children's Media Conference, which, of course, has been held this year. Who comes to that? I mean, is that just a UK-based thing or is it much wider? It was growing to be wider. We're going into our 21st year next July, in, in July 24, and it was growing to be international and then the pandemic hit. So in a way, it became even more international because we went online for a couple of years. But since the pandemic, the whole and the downturn in the economy, the whole business of sort of travelling around the world for television executives, I think, has quite diminished. So we're hoping to regrow our international friends, as it were, uh, uh, next summer. So, yeah, we, we have a relationship with the Department of Business and Trade who like us to put on a small sort of British based market for kids programmes, which we do. So we're. We're hoping that that will sort of stimulate them to come back again. 
And uh, the situation, from everything you've said, and I've read you that said, the situation is pretty serious when it comes to children's programming. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't want to just look back at golden days. Uh, there certainly were golden days. But how would you categorise the state of children's programming today, in the UK specifically? The programming itself is as golden as ever. I'm not a golden ageist. I don't believe in it at all. Uh, every generation has their own golden age and we're still in one. You have the most fantastic programmes for young children. You have the most amazing content available for older children. And even if you count platforms like Netflix, you have the, the uh, astonishing things available for teens. But the prospects for the business of television for kids are palace to say the least it's quite dire and some of the members of our foundation have been around a very long time and they say that, you know they've been through many many crises many many phases the business goes up and down it always does but this is a really bad down at the moment the amount of commissioning is very very low and actually that's reflected going back to international that's reflected right across the world now, is this because there are a whole range of factors coming into play at the moment? We have no growth yes. in the economy. We've had the actor's strike in America and the writer's strike, and we've had productions delayed. And we do read the industry generally. I mean, extraordinary number. Majority of freelancers in general are unemployed at the moment. But, I mean, is this a dip yes. or is this actually something that has been accelerated, a decline which is now being accelerated by these particular circumstances? The latter, I think. It is a long-term systemic decline in the children's and youth area. And that is partly to do with the way public service is organised in this country, where there was fantastic support beyond the BBC, fantastic support for kids' content and money spent on it. And Ofcom's identified in, in their figures that very little is now being spent outside the BBC. Well, actually, it, it's very little. Is there anything, I mean, I haven't looked precisely what, say, Channel 5, Channel 4, Channel 3 are doing, but my impression, and certainly in the run-up to these negotiations of the media bill, is that they are largely getting out of children's programming. Uh, they don't see its potential in terms of its, the audience, and they don't see the potential in terms of sales. Are they right about the fact that the potential for public service broadcasting in terms of the interest of parents and children is diminished significantly, and therefore the market might be there in theory, it's not there in practice? The market is there in practice in that there are still millions of kids and millions of parents who want to watch great shows, and they're doing it. They're still watching in enormous numbers, but they're not watching on linear channels. So you're right, the, the PSBs, I mean, I, I can't speak for them and say they want to get out of it, but, you know, it, it is pretty clear that uh, for three years we had the Young Audiences Fund, what John Whittingdale called the Contestable Fund initially, and we lobbied with others to try to ensure that most of that fund was directed towards children and young people. And it was. And for three years, in the end, it put in about 44 million into the industry. And ITV, Channel 5 and Channel 4 all benefited from that. They all made a series from it. They all made more programmes. Producers also benefited. Programmes were also developed using the fund. 
And, and actually, at one point, even Sky benefited from the fund because they found a way of, of putting their content onto Sky News, which is a free-to-air channel, which was within the rules of the fund, free at the point of use. But if you're talking about this in the past tense, does that mean the fund stopped? Yeah, well, it's gone, because it's gone, yeah. It disappeared, uh, you know, it were well, brutally axed. When did it disappear, sorry? Um, oh, gosh, uh... Well, coming up for two years now, I suppose, really. 18 months, perhaps. And was there any reason given? Well, it was a pilot. It was a pilot. Yeah. So it was a three-year pilot. But you're saying that it was a successful pilot, that you could demonstrate that it had an impact. Yes. Um, was there any defence of cutting it by government, other than saying that uh, everything has to be cut, everybody has to take a share, or whatever it is? Well, the defence was it was a pilot, and there was a set amount of money set aside out of an underspend that had existed at the BBC. This is, it's quite complex, this, but it basically um, the BBC has always been upset about the fund because it says the money came from the licence fee. The rest of us, I think, say, well, it didn't really because the money came from licence fee money that was actually given back to the DCMS because it was an underspend on the, um, on the BBC's commitment to roll out broadband. And they had managed, they'd achieved their targets and they hadn't needed to spend as much and £60 million was sitting in the DCMS. So that was allocated to the fund. So that, that was one thing, that it was, a, it was a fund for three years, you know, £20 million a year, as it were. Didn't ever quite spend that. They, they already started to cut it back. Uh, secondly, the DCMS has never published its actual assessment of the fund. There, there was an independent assessment of the fund organised by the fund itself as it closed itself down. And that came out with figures about employment, figures about the amount of content made, all of which were very impressive. But of course, the fundamental problem, which I can't speak for government, but I suspect which sits at the heart of the DCMS's concern about the fund, was that it couldn't reach audiences. Which brings us back to the, the fundamental problem that we have been sort of going on about for quite a while now at the Children's Media Foundation, is this massive loss of audience to new services, the movement away from linear channels, and worse than that, the movement away from the linear channel brands. So, Well, you, you, you can't do anything about that. I mean, children will go where they're going to go. Don't you have to be sh- make sure that you are where they go with the content that you make and that we feel is important? Uh, do you suggest that the broadcasters, including, of course, the BBC in this, have been very slow to find children where they now are? Yes, I, I think they have, and I, I think it's. I don't think it's taken them by surprise, but I think the scale of it has taken them by surprise, and the the current head of BBC Children's is is working hard to develop strategies to, you know, to try to claw audience back. A lot of that is around um, creating more British-led animation for older children. And let's be let's be absolutely precise about this: the Great Migration is occurring from about the age of seven up. I mean, younger children are also using YouTube an enormous amount. But, you know, the viewing figures for services like a Channel 5's Milkshake or uh, the BBC's CBeebies channel are still relatively strong. Not as high as they were, but they're relatively strong. It's just the over sevens. These are targeted at children CB for, for yeah. naught yeah. to 6. And the BBC decided last year, I think, or announced last year, that it would put CBBC, which was for 6 to 12, yes. online. Was that just a recognition of the reality that the children weren't there from 6 to 12 in front of television sets? Essentially, they were off on the phones and you needed to go after, off after them. Yes, essentially it, it is. It's also a cost-cutting exercise, of course, because channels cost a lot of money to run. 
whereas on online services cost less. And do we know the consequences of that in terms of uh, the people who are accessing what CBBC 6 to 12 was doing? Do you think that you can measure a drop-off or an increase in audience? Oh, well, that hasn't happened yet. They haven't made that move. The company that has made the move is ITV. ITV has now switched. It, there is no longer a CITV channel. It is now part of ITVX, their online service. ITV have a specific problem, which is they, they decided some years ago to target the six-plus age group. So you have Milkshake that tends to be the, pub, the commercial public service provider for the under sixes. ITV chose the six-plus age group and Channel 4 picked the sort of 12, 14-plus age group. And that's, in fact, what that uh, young audience's content on money was used for. So ITV, with that being their only channel, as it were, their only demographic, they were really at the sharp end of the audience loss. I mean, ITV have admitted to us that when they took the decision to shut down CITV channel and move it all online, they were getting programme viewing figures of around 4,000 children per programme. I mean, that is actually not even measurable, you know, for advertising purposes. For the, on the main ITV channel, they were getting 4,000. On the CITV, on the CITV channel. Well, it isn't sustainable, as you say. Well, and this was an average, an average. So, um, and I can imagine they've probably averaged it, you know, for a reason, because they want to justify their move. But the figures are very, very low, shockingly low. Let me turn the argument around. We've been talking about... Uh, and let's put aside the business questions that we want a healthy, thriving industry and whatever. Let's ask... Uh, let's, just, let's take the argument that the market is providing, and it doesn't matter uh, who provides it as long as children are getting what they want. Now, uh, that argument I hear sometimes. How do you... What will the... Well, in other words, is there a role? Is there a, a, a market failure anywhere? a range of programming that we believe as a society should be available to children and is not or is becoming decreasingly available to children. Yes, there's a market failure in what we would have traditionally called public service content for children and young people. So content which, in the first instance, specifically reflects their lives. And um, I don't want to sound like a little Englander, partly because I'm Welsh, so, so I'm not... But the amount of UK originated content, which is both made here in the UK, but also reflects UK lives, has diminished. That has been counted by Ofcom and it's been diminishing really since 2007. You know, and it's just gone down and down and down. And so what you have is you have a public service system, which, as we know, is the BBC on the one hand and the three commercial public service broadcasters plus S4C on the other. And all of the commercial public service broadcasters are now producing less, with ITV producing massively less than it did before, because it just cannot afford to make the finances fit. So what's missing is content that really speaks to a child in the UK. Content where they see the end of their road, where they hear stories that sound familiar to them, where they see themselves or people like themselves in programmes. And what's replacing it is, is content which is, charitably, we could call it international, but in fact, it's obviously dominated by the United States. So you, you have content which is either made through international co-production, and a lot of wonderful and beautiful animations are made that way, 
and have always been made that way. And in fact, some of the bigger drama programmes for children in the last 20 years have also been made that way through co-financing by several broadcasters. And of course, once you have co-financing, everyone needs a little bit of that pie. They need, they need a little bit of the sense of place, as it were, or the sense of relevance. And the dominant financer will inevitably be the one that dominates the content. And that would affect content, the casting, a whole raft of yes. things. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I, it's, if you think that one of the things that children's uh, programmes should be helping to do is to understand the society in which they yes. live... Yes, it's vital. Uh, and the fantastic diversity of our society. You know, with the, there's, there's so little scope to show that our diverse culture. There's so little scope for us to learn about each other. Our kids are spending quite a lot of time learning about yellow school buses, you know, but um, we don't actually have them. Sorry, I don't, forgive me, I'm very old. I don't understand that reference. What? Well, well, yellow school buses, you know, the sort of thing you see in high school movies. You know, oh, this yeah. Is, this is... yeah. Oh, that does show my age. But if we can make a public service case for that, and in the recent media bill, I think the government has said very clearly that it wants to ensure that content is made uh, with a distinctive British element to it. I think they express it slightly differently. What do you say to them then? I mean, you say it's obviously not happening. We're being, I, you wouldn't use this word, but I'll use it, swamped by American television output. Children are just not uh, finding the sort of programming that we generally would like them to find. When you have that conversation with government, does government shrug its shoulders and say, well, the market's spoken? Or do you have a plan? Does anyone in your area have a plan for what you really could do about this? Well, can I just deal with Swamped very briefly as an aside, which, is, I mean, a lot of that content they're watching is fantastic. It's wonderful. There is a lot of brilliant content, content for them on YouTube that could be said to be public service. You know, there is content that helps them lead their lives, which is what Blue Peter always did or or Newsround does, or whatever drama programme they might be watching, content that helps them lead their lives. But several things are happening. One is that, that it's damaging the capacity of the British industry to make this content because the, com the production of the content is going abroad. And the second is that it is diluting kids' relationship with their own culture and their own society. And what we say to politicians is that and you're right, the media bill not only uh, enshrines public service purpose as partly as British material, but it also enshrines children's along with news in its current form. And I think as a result of the um, Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee pre-scrutiny of the bill and some of the criticism they made, they've now, I think, probably moved further to include some of the other genres as defined public service content. So children's was always in there, which I, I'm pleased to see. In fact, there are people in the DCMS who are long-time supporters of the children's cause, hence the Young Audiences Content Fund. But the reality is that there's no money available in the system to bolster this. And you ask, can there be a plan? We, we think there can. We think there could be a number of measures taken to assist the British industry to make more content. But we also need a number of me measures to help those people making that content, whether they be the broadcasters, the, the existing public service broadcasters or new players in the field, to help that content be found by kids 
So for us, the issues are funding and finding. Now, I understand about the funding. And tell me about the finding. What could, what could we do to ensure that the programming or however the content is available where children are likely to be able to, A, know about it, let alone access it? It comes back to something you mentioned earlier on. If the children are watching on, let's say, YouTube or TikTok, if they're watching, significantly watching on Netflix, which they are, and Disney+, Plus, which they are, if indeed they're spending an enormous amount of time in Roblox, then the time has come to start thinking about these places as the new platforms for public service content. That's the sort of radical thinking that we at the Foundation are sort of trying to push forward now, that in the 1950s, when commercial television came along, the government saw an opportunity for something that was going to make a lot of money and be very popular to also enhance the public service offering. And it placed public service responsibilities on ITV in return for its prominence, for being button number three on the television. And that system has continued. It took a little working out but it continued into the multi-channel age, where now there is prominence. Yeah, I understand that, but that's. But I can see how the negotiation goes. ITV, British company or companies, want something. Government says you can have it if you do this. But British government can't say that to Netflix, can they? Or, t- or YouTube? Well, or TikTok? I mean, how do well, they negotiate? Well can, well, can they? Well, can they? Why does it matter that it was a British company? The, the important thing, surely, was that it was it was accessing British audiences and getting them to pay in one way or another, getting them to pay for this content. And that's what's happening on the new platforms. Nobody's doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. In the end, there, there's a financial exchange taking place. And basically, this comes back to funding as well as finding. I think the new platforms have a responsibility. If they want to talk to our audiences, then they need to both pay up and ensure that British content finds those audiences on their platform. YouTube uses algorithms for that. Well, we can say they should do, but they tend to be inevitably driven by profit. Uh, What can government do to say... Yeah, well, of course, we want you to do this and so on. But hold on, we do have a little bit of a stick. Do they have a stick or do they only have carrots? That's the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that they don't really have a stick, except they've just passed the Online Safety Act. So you've got a situation in which already the impossible has happened. All the Silicon Valley companies said you can't regulate the Internet. You can't regulate the Internet. It's what it is. It's organic. It's, you know, it's just out there. It's beyond borders and all the rest of it. Turns out, well, we're going to make a fair stab at regulating the Internet. But the online safety bill only really regulates the Internet against harm. Once you've done that, and if you can prove it's possible to do it, and indeed what's happening now is organisations like YouTube are developing their own self-regulation. They've at our own conference last year, you know, it, last July at the Children's Media Conference, a representative of YouTube said, we welcome some regulation. We welcome regulation. It's time for a level playing field. They, I suspect, as an organisation, are beginning to realise how important it is to bring families along with them that they can't be just a maverick Wild West place where children go in and watch, children who are falsifying their age, pretend to be 13, they watch anything that they want. Parents 
beyond the age of eight, seven, eight or nine have no idea what their children are watching. None of this is great for an organisation like YouTube that wants to establish itself as part of family life. So I think that the time is actually ripe. Interestingly, David Olasoga spoke at the Children's Media Conference last year, and one of the things he... The, histori- the, historian, the historian, yes, yeah. the broadcaster, and, and when asked about children and media, not his subject, but as a historian, you know, he had given it some thought in advance, and he said, I think, I think we're, we're coming out of a period in which people will be astonished at how little regulation there was, how little control of rich, powerful, multinational companies there was. And 50 years from now, we'll look back and think, thank goodness we did something about it. He put an optimistic spin on it. I can put the the spin the other way, which is if we don't do something now, I don't want to be apocalyptic, but I will be. If we want to do something now, we, we will have, we already have a generation of children who are not watching what you would have called traditional public service content, which is based here in their lives, relevant to them, tailored to their life stage needs, which is what children's programming is about that everyone forgets because they say, oh, but millions of children are watching Strictly. Yes, and that's a fantastic public service programme. It's brilliant. It's it's the BBC, to my mind, at its best. And yes, lots of children watch it. And they watch EastEnders. And of course, they always have. But what they're not watching is programmes which are specifically tailored to them. They're about them. And they deal with their concerns at certain stages of their lives. That's been the fantastic capacity of children's programmes over the years. That a lot of people, in both in adult broadcasting and in government, seem to miss. There's a temptation to say, well, uh, OK, but you're living in the past. It's gone. What you're saying is the situation's dire, but there is something we can do. It's, yes. You've used this phrase, funding and finding. We can attempt to reproduce the public service structures of the past, but within the modern structures of media consumption. So if in the past we had a third channel where we decided that should also be public service, what a crazy idea that was. Who needed to do that? But they did. And then we had multi-channel television and we decided that we would in some way legally make it necessary for the multi-channel operators to enhance the position of the public service commercial channels and the BBC's channels on their electronic programme guides. Why can't we now come up with new ways of doing that in a multimedia consumption world? Greg Charles, uh, thank you very much. And, and, and thank you again for the record breakers. And if anybody's listening to this and you have a tape of one of those programmes, well, you know where to send it. Greg, thanks very much. Thank you, Roger. Well, that's it for this week. If you have been enjoying Be Watch, please support us. It's less than a cup of coffee at £1.99 per month. And in return, you'll be able to find out about my take on this week's interview in my weekly blog. It's quick and easy to sign up at patreon.com forward slash bewatch. The link to this can be found on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. And if you didn't know already... This podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It's a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.